1: This podcast
2: contains explicit language. So that happened. This week, joining us in the studio, we are welcoming documentary filmmaker Steve Mims, whose latest movie, Starving the Beast, details an ongoing crisis in public higher education. After decades of funding cuts, our great public universities are finding themselves increasingly vulnerable to the whims of agenda-setting politicians and post-crash disruptors who are angling to redefine these universities' missions and curricula, leaving them as shadows of their former selves. The movie is coming soon to a theater near you. Hopefully it gets there before the emergency it describes. Meanwhile... Are capitalism and democracy headed for some kind of nasty breakup? and Will they stay together for the kids? That's the provocative contention of influential British economist Martin Wolf, who recently took to the pages of The Economist to suggest that the pace of globalization may be pushing us to make a choice. Given the state of our politics, where cash rules everything around us, it could be that this choice is already being made for us. Finally, they say that anytime our national anthem is sung, we have the opportunity to pause and contemplate this nation of ours and our place within it. Oddly enough, San Francisco 49ers quarterback Colin Kaepernick recently took this opportunity for himself to think deeply about these matters, and he's getting pilloried in the press for having done so. I guess ruminating on America is all well and good until you point out the racism. We'll discuss the story that has every hot take artist with a sub 100 IQ all a froth this week. I'm Jason Lincolns with Huffington Post reporters Paul Blumenthal, Zach Carter, Elise Foley, and Travis Waldron. We'll have all of that, plus all the latest ways that Donald Trump has flipped and flopped incoherently on his immigration policy. But here's what happened first. Hello, America. Welcome back to another edition of So That Happened, your weekly podcast about everything that's gone wrong in the country and what we're trying to do to fix it as best we can. I'm just looking so I'm the editor of Eat the Press at the Huffington Post. Joining me right now, right off the bat, uh, is our friend Arthur. No, I no. said Arthur Delaney. Arthur Delaney is having a baby, right? Oh, his
3: wife had a baby. Now, His wife no, had a he's baby. He's helping her take care of it. He's
2: helping yeah. take care of it.
3: Yeah, we but, miss him. He's but I'm not here. Zach Carter and I'm on the podcast Zach Zach is week. here.
2: <laughs> I don't know why I said Arthur Delaney.
3: Apologies to all the Arthur fans who have to settle for me every every segment this week.
2: <laughs> but but feel good. He's having a kid and his last kid was pretty cool. I have high hopes for this kid. Um <laughs> Really, I do. Um, and brought us a very special guest uh, joining us today. He is a documentary filmmaker best known for the movie Incendiary, which doc- which uh, discussed at great length the death penalty case of Cameron Todd, of Cameron Todd Willingham and uh, Rick Perry's involvement in sending... An innocent man to jail and to death row and to his death. Uh, his new movie is called "Starving the Beast." It is about uh, higher education and everything that's going wrong in higher education. Welcome, please, Steve Mims. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Steve, tell me tell me about why you wanted to do this movie.
4: Well, I live in Austin, Texas, and uh, it basically came from reading the newspaper. We were following what was happening in Texas, and to make a long story short the governor, Rick Perry, was appointing people to the Board of Regents for Texas A&M and to UT Austin. And evidently, and what we later found out to be true, he was appointing them to radically change them from the inside out. So there he had a, literally an agenda to go in and modify the way that those universities handle research the way they handled tenure, the way they handled all the important things that make a university a university. And um, so he had put people in place to help facilitate that. And it, it, what made it worthy of being in the newspaper was like, you you know, nobody ever reads anything interesting about boards of regents. There's usually wealthy <laughs> older guys who meet, you know, and say yes, no, yes, no. And in this case, it's like people are having a fit. And so we knew that there was a story there, and so we started covering that initially. And then in our research, and then the people that we came across and we talked to, people basically shared with us that this is not unique to Texas, that this story and stories with this similar cast of characters and influences was basically happening all, all over the country. And so we started broadening out the film uh, to cover what was happening at UVA and what was happening at the University of Wisconsin and Chapel Hill and lSU um, and I'm leaving out some school but the um
2: Wisconsin and Madison yeah yeah, yeah.
4: and so um yeah that's that's how we get involved so the 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 story around the University of
3: Virginia is very dear to both my heart and Jason's because mm-hmm. we're both Alumni's of the University of Virginia are alumnuses. Alumni, alumni is the plural. Alumnu, alumni, alumni, alumni. <laughs> alumni. Uh, and uh, <laughs> and as a result of being alumnuses, we uh, <laughs> we, we followed uh, the controversy surrounding Teresa Sullivan a couple years ago very very closely. And yeah. one of the things that really jumped out at me from that from that whole mess was the the degree to which. Um, The university, despite having all of this sort of political influence from, you know, the state, the state university, only takes a tiny shred of its funding Mm -hmm. um, from from the state. How does that end up playing out in in sort of the politics of higher education?
4: It's a problem. And it's a uniquely public university problem like this. This is an important distinction. This is the issues we cover in the film are peculiar to public universities. And it's because they take. X amount of funding from the state. And for the privilege of taking a tiny percentage, they are under the dominion of politicians because uh, these are people, uh, the Board of Regents have been appointed by governors or whatever they're appointed by in different states. And um, they're beholden to the state legislature. So, uh, for instance, at UT Austin, they in around 1980, they, they, they got about 60% of their money from the state. Now they get 12%. But for that 12%, they have to do anything that the state tells them to do, including allowing people to carry guns on campus um, uh, because they, they're a state entity, even though they have to find the other giant check of money to fund the place.
3: So you end up with sort of the the worst of, of, of both worlds in the ownership equation where you still have to go out and, and court private donors. Right. But at the same time, uh, you're you're – your, your minority stakeholder, for instance, has, has to set effectively limitless power over you.
2: Yes. And, and you're putting more of the tuition – the cost to, on the students through higher tuition. Right. I mean the – Which one, engenders the need to like, well, is this degree like working out right. in a neoliberal equation of I mean, like a job at the end that made the debt worth it?
4: Yeah. I mean the the thing that you hear about over and over now about public higher education or about higher education is about student debt. Mm-hmm. And a, <clears throat> there's something there's a whiff in all that reporting that basically – wants to indict the students for borrowing money for what people think is they're wasting their time, spending a lot of time getting a degree, and maybe it's frivolous what they're studying.
2: Like my English degree and Zach's philosophy degree. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. obviously
4: (laughs) useless. Yeah. And so, uh, (laughs) but however, what that focus misses is the 35-year history before that. Like the, the reason why all that debt, well, one reason why all that debt's piled up is because the burden for paying for the university has shifted from a small percentage to the to the majority. And so that money has to come from somewhere. The universities, UVA, UT, they've all been very entrepreneurial about dealing with this. I mean, they're never not fundraising. Right? Yeah. They're always asking for money. They have done everything. They've outsourced uh people, uh, like they'll have a lot of universities, all their accounting is done by somebody who subcontracts for it Mm -hmm. and they they have adjunct faculty people you know, they've done everything they can to remain competitive and it's still expensive and so now uh, you know, you can walk out of a place like University of Wisconsin-Madison with a degree that's competitive with, you know, Stanford or MIT depending on where you're in and um, and you're going to walk out with a debt that's not unlike what you had to, would have from Standard or MIT, when the whole idea initially was, the state is going to underwrite these universities because it's a wise investment in people, and those people are going to um, make the state stronger and financially viable, and they're going to make the world uh, better. And that has been the case. Like that's that's one part about the argument that. It's pretty irrefutable, like the the, the wisdom from before the Morrill Act, mm-hmm. you know, all the way back to Jefferson, that that's going to build a great country. And, and actually, you're going to wind up with a public education system that's so valuable that people will pay a premium to ship their kids from wherever in the world and pay the highest rate for tuition because it has a value, right?
2: That's one of the more interesting things about the movie is you do a good job sort of like talking about this convergence of conservative politicians who want to limit the sort of like kind of curriculum that 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 produces critical thinkers and you also have sort of meritocrats who want to do like they did at uva strategic dynamism right right size run things as a business one of the things that has interested me about this is that we do have for-profit institutions, where they are run as a business, where they right. commodify education. They treat <laughs> students as customers, right. not as not as, not as as people being educated. They're right. not treated as a public good. And those institutions have failed. They failed to right. educate their students properly, right. position them in the marketplace, not saddle them with debt. Right. It seems to me that all these forces understand that they can't actually create a bespoke for-profit brand yeah. that has the same sort of legacy impact as the University of North Carolina University of Virginia, University of Michigan, University of Texas—that those brands still have prestige, uh, but they do seem very bent on limiting the things that made those brands so prestigious. One of my favorite characters in your book is Jeff Sandifer. This is a guy who wrote like a a memorandum, his seven steps to basically running the entire UT system as a business. In one breath, he talks about how his idea is so important. Everyone has to adopt it and he'll throw a snit fit and start his own school if no one will adopt it. Out of the other breath, he's like, you know, I think study Shakespeare. William Faulkner. I'm not so sure he's as important to study. I'm just like so. This guy literally <laughs> places himself at a higher position, prestige-wise and learning-wise than mm. arguably the greatest American fiction
4: writer. Right, right. Which is nuts to me. Yeah, no, it's it's, it's really. We tried to put that in the film, and other there are other people who speak in the film, and I have to say, from they have conviction, right? They they're saying what they believe. They do, but but that conviction is kind of amazing, and, like, and that's one of the values of seeing the film. It's like, these people mean it. they, they, I think that they really believe it, uh, but people need to know they're out there, people are out there who think and believe they believe that. So I, I swim
3: in these swamps of most of my reporting is surrounding financial policy, economic policy, yeah. and I, I really dislike the frame by which we analyze education for its like economic output. I I think, I think it's just, it's good and it's okay for it to be good, whether it like results in a balance sheet getting bigger or smaller. Um, But it it has been interesting to me to, to talk to, uh, you know, like a lot of community bankers who are typically, they they, they get this sort of like good guy reputation in Washington because they're not like the Wall Street guys, but but they're generally just kind of like conservative white male Republicans. Um, And they've started talking about student debt. And they talk about it because they're, they're realizing that they're not selling, you know, community makers do pretty right. boring stuff, right? right? They're not selling as many car loans. They're not selling as many mortgages to people who are 22, 23, 25, because right. these kids are coming out of college with all this debt. And it, it's interesting to me to see this become... You know, sort of, sort of a problem for for businesses. Mm. And when we talk about the balance sheet of like the state of what it costs to do something, I think we often forget that like if the state's not shouldering this burden, if right. we as right. as you know citizens aren't shouldering it as taxpayers, right. it ends up coming out somewhere, right? right? And it, it's right. it's coming out of of, of right. the economy in right. this way. Um, I'm curious about the students that that I mean, is there a perception among students? Uh, in in the schools that you mm-hmm. that you were covering, mm-hmm. like, do they see public funding as an issue, or are they, or do they see that as being divorced from the debt problem?
4: You know, I honestly, I, I really can't say. Although I can say that, I think students are probably the least informed about this mm. because they're in school. They're there, and that's part of the insidious nature of this problem. And that is, these universities are essentially repopulated every four years or so. And so, if you go to UVA today, uh, you don't know what it was like four years ago. You yeah. don't know what it was like 16 years ago. Right. Yeah. And the, and the same thing is true for alumni. They go back and they go like, "Oh, the place looks great. And <laughs> <Right. Yeah. laughs> Nothing's on fire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's something yeah.
2: new. That's good. Growth right. is good. Right.
4: right. But the <laughs> underpinnings of it can all be gone, and they would be the last people to know, and not really want to know. And the, and this is another problem is that universities themselves are loath to wade into this. Because they're an ongoing concern. Like, they're worried about this semester. They're worried about their incoming people next year. And their response to this has been largely positive. Like, they're always saying the good things are doing, and that's what they should be doing. But uh, they are public employees in their circumspect about saying, oh, by the way, the place is on fire. That we got to fix it, but send your kids here anyway. They can't simultaneously present those two world views, right? When LSU
2: said they were going to go into bankruptcy, that was the earth-shaking event that changed everything. As you make the point of the movie, probably the earth-shaking event was that a year without LSU football.
4: LSU football, you cannot not have that, you know. So yeah, this is a these these. There are state employees that are you know, even if they have tenure, can be fired. They're maybe I think maybe overly cautious about dealing with this issue because they have to make sure that the university continues to function. So that makes it h- hard, uh, and so they're not they're not uh, sharing this with students, and students are not really. I mean, think about what you're like when you're an undergrad. It's like you're you're there to do whatever you're there to do, and it's like um, so. I don't think it's a <laughs>
3: We'll not talk about our undergraduate well, I mean,
4: days I, th- I think even in terms of debt, like the way people look at debt, I think, especially from the middle class in, the, in these schools, is that student debt is still the best debt, right? So if it's a given that you're going to have to have debt, they, I think the philosophy of a lot of families is we're going to find a way to pay for it, mm-hmm. right? Right. The, the issue of like how much it's going to be or whatever, we're going to deal with that at the end, but you got to get you have, the education. You have this one, you though. You're going to get in there and you're going to do it because you can't be walking around in the United States without the right paperwork now to potentially get the job that you're going to need because you don't know what it's going to be. So I think people are willing to be aware of it but live through it and then deal with the outcome later. And I think that's part of like why this has become such an insidious thing.
2: All right, well... Starving the Beast is opening in Washington, D.C., tomorrow, Friday, at the E Street Cinema in Washington. It then will begin uh, to open up across the country. It's at the IFC Center in New York City on the 9th of September. It's going to be opening in Austin, Charlottesville, Los Angeles, and Madison on the 16th of September. And it's going to be going uh, mostly to some of the places where you actually did this research. And so students who maybe have been at a distance from this, and understandably so, because they're yeah. all working for their betterment as well, will have an opportunity to start engaging these issues. And, and, or drunk. <laughs> <laughs> they'll, they'll they're yeah. going to have it they're going to have an opportunity to like really understand the pressures uh that are being placed on your schools behind the scenes. Right. So, I recommend this movie to everybody. Please check it out uh starvingthebeast.com, I believe, is the .net. starvingthebeast.net uh check out the preview, read the uh materials and yeah. uh get to a showing if you can.
4: Yeah, no.
2: All right. A- Steve, thanks for joining us. Thank thanks so, for having me. again uh, for for coming by and, and, and agreeing to an interview with me for whatever. No, reason. no, I'm a, I'm a giant <laughs> fan actually. So, <laughs> well, thanks, thanks. We we really appreciate uh, that. All right, <laughs> all right. Yeah, yes. Steve Mims says, <laughs> who, who the, "This podcast is the one to, one to listen to yeah, among absolutely. many."
4: Absolutely.
2: everybody we're back so from time to time we like to check in with the uh, most recent uh, uh thought fluencing from the meritocracy and and how they want to govern our lives in a more efficient manner allocate capital correctly turn the shock troops in the global war on capital uh out in greater numbers and here to talk about that is uh zach carter why hello and uh paul blumenthal Hello. Making, I think, no, not your debut on this podcast. Second time. Second time, yes. Paul. been Blumen. a while. Paul is our money in politics man, and we're going to talk about some money in politics, man. So, Zach, set up the story of that, uh, this this uh, Martin Wolf column that is going to be a game changer for all of us.
3: So, th- 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 this was a pretty big deal, I think. Martin Wolf is a, he's probably the most widely read and influential British uh, economics writer. He writes for the Financial Times. And he's a guy who's been very much sort of part of of the global mainstream for a good 20 or so years. He wrote a book in 2004 called Why Globalization Works, right? So he's not somebody who you would have seen like in 1999 protesting the WTO in Seattle. Um,
2: okay, fair right? enough.
3: He's, 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 part, he's deeply embedded in the global elite and is really influential among them. Um, but he wrote a column uh, basically saying that democracy and capitalism may be headed for a divorce here. The idea of, like, you know, a free market where people are free to make their decisions and the idea of, like, a democracy where you're free to vote for who you want and say stuff without being oppressed, those seem like they're sort of harmonious ideas. But what we're actually seeing as global capitalism advances or just does what it's done for the last 30 years uh, is a rise of unaccountable global economic forces um, that seem to be operating against the wishes of, of people who actually vote for political norms and, and governances. And he suggested that this is causing sort of a crack up in, in global politics.
2: So my response to that would be like, fine, let's definitely uh, save democracy and rethink capitalism. Cool. We're done, right? We're we're good to go, right? Well, I think Martin Wolf is
3: a little less ready to just like throw out capitalism. Um, he was suggesting we could we could maybe start by throwing out free trade agreements, or at least rethinking the way we do them. Uh, you know, if you look at TPP or NAFTA or the WTO agreements, they do give corporations this ability, unique ability to challenge. You know, government regulations and laws before an international body, and and they're you know particularly like NAFTA and TPP. These are privileges that they don't afford to like labor unions. If somebody, if a country violates, you know, a labor law or environmental groups, if a country dumps a bunch of you know shit in a river, that um, it's you know this this is clearly an attempt to give corporations greater influence over over the political process. In fact,
2: they're more apt to overturn a law that would criminalize or penalize uh, someone for polluting that river than they would be to actually protect that river.
3: There's a whole industry, actually, that's picking up of, of people. Dave Dayen reported on this for for us uh, earlier this week. Uh, there's an industry of people who just are buying up companies based on their ability to speculatively file lawsuits against sovereign governments over environmental regulations or labor regulations that they expect to come down, down the pike. So um, there are real problems with this stuff, and he wants to rethink that. Um, but I, I do think... It's important to to think, you know, just because capitalism looks the way it does now doesn't mean that it has to look that way in all times. And I feel like, Paul, you know, you've written a lot about corruption and money and politics for us. It's I feel like we're living in sort of like a uniquely corrupt moment right now that it hasn't always been this bad. Am I wrong about that?
5: I mean, I think it really depends on how you look at it. Historically, you go back. I mean, you have like C. Wright Mills writing about like uh, domination of politics by, you know, like a global corporate elite or even just a local corporate elite back in the 1950s. So, I mean, it's not like people haven't worried about this for a long time, but certainly, I mean, you just look at the direction of politics in a lot of countries in Europe and even in the United States, and you see people sort of reacting to this divergence, um, between, you know, who's, who's really doing the winning, if I'm going to, you know, paraphrase Donald Trump and Mm -hmm. it's, you know, giant global multinational corporations that have been winning basically since the 1970s, since they sort of divorced from any kind of national social contract and involvement. Um, And I think that that has gone hand in hand with, uh, you know, spikes in corporate influence in political economies across the world, uh, campaign contributions, lobbying... Um, and you know a rise in inequality that comes with political decisions made by our leaders influenced by corporations.
2: That's also around the same time frame where we saw that we see the divergence in between wages and capital as well. The, the sort of like 40 yeah, year uh, pretty much starts gap. In, the, in
5: the 1970s. And then I think you know this debate we're having, or Martin Wolf is bringing up and that you wrote about Zach, Uh, you know, about the divergence between democracy and capitalism sort of goes back to the fall of the USSR and, you know, the Mm quote-unquote end of history, according to Fukuyama. Yeah,
3: Francis Fukuyama.
5: (laughs) You know, and uh, it it turned out that, uh, you know, history didn't end, but now that, you know, what remained was liberal democracy and capitalism as, like, the two pillars of what could be the end of history, and now they are at uh, heads.
3: Yeah, I I, I think, you know, at at the end of the First World War, and then again at the end of the Second World War, there were were very serious problems for for capitalism and democracy and people like John Maynard Keynes made eloquent pleas to please reform capitalism so that it works um, and they didn't after World War one but then they did after World War two uh,
5: there was a whole thing that happened there
3: yeah there's there's <laughs> and you can, there, there are people including Keynes who believe that World War II happened because they didn't fix capitalism after World War one but the big scare at that time was that it was that you were going to see communism or you're going to see fascism and and Wolf talks in his his article about sort of a different threat he, he talks about you know you know, confiscatory autocratic regimes maybe run by dictators it's, it's really a nice word for fascism or a nice turn of phrase for fascism sure on the one hand um and he talks about regimes like putin's russia like erdogan's turkey that seem to be moving in that direction uh, and then he also talks about but he, instead of talking about socialism he talks about something else he talks about the rise of this sort of global um plutocrat class and i felt like for the 2016 race I think a lot of Democrats find it very easy to say okay well Donald Trump clearly represents one of those right he's he's running a fascist campaign that's that's clearly he's the fascist responding to this this sort of economic crisis but I think Democrats are more reluctant to see Hillary Clinton as representative of the global super elite but I thought of that immediately what do you guys think about that
2: I think that's correct I mean one of the things we keep coming back to uh, on the show is that Clinton's vision for solving the problem of Economic inequality. She sees it all through this rubric of well, we need greater diversity in the professional class. Like those who are affluent, they're too white and too male. And a virtuous society would have a less white and less male dominated affluent class there, but there's nothing in her rhetoric that suggests that she has any type of plan for the middle class or the working class. She would
3: diversify the existing inequality racially and gender, which is, which would be better than what we have now, right? That would be progress. I mean, it would still still be dominant economic class.
2: It's definitely virtuous to, 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 to diversify, the 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 creative class and, and the professional class. There's no no doubt about that. But I mean, really, w- there's been a rich diversity among the poor for quite some time. Like the fact that there, <laughs> the fact the fact that the poor the poor have achieved an equilibrium of diversity, it doesn't attract any attention. It doesn't make anyone want to come and solve their problems. Um, it's it seems to me like there's you know, the the road to serfdom is leading a way that the person who originally wrote that book didn't expect.
3: I I think there there are some policies that Clinton has supported here that, that I think would, would make things better, you know, a higher minimum wage. She's at least for now opposed to the Trans Pacific Partnership. I, you know I think you you could say that there are some policies that she's at least giving lip service to um that I think would be good. But when you look at the way the Democratic establishment is talking about sure. her candidacy. Yeah. I mean Paul, I'd really like to hear from you on this. Like, You know, a lot of the stuff they say about like, you remember like the Goldman Sachs donations and and the uh, the Clinton Foundation's operations, which you mean talk about globalists like, right? Sure. Yeah. Countries, political rulers from all over the world who give to that. A lot of the defenses to me sound like, uh, you know, oh, it's not corruption if it's if we can't prove like a specific quid pro quo of you know cash for policy decision making. Right. Does that sound to you like Citizens United?
5: I mean, I think somewhat. I think there are probably differences between... I mean, I think that, you know, the Goldman Sachs speeches are particularly stand out as something that, you know, should get more attention on that front because it's like direct money going into your pocket. It's, you know, income. Mm-hmm. And there are, you know, we have ethics restrictions, legal restrictions about where your income can come from if you're actually sitting in office. So, you know, there are similar conceptions about... Um, from campaign finance as being like something that fuels your career. You cannot get elected without that money. And therefore we believe that there should be these certain rules and restrictions and, you know, boundaries around it. You know, we have these conceptions about what it means for a democracy to be electing people with all this money. Mm -hmm. I think we similarly do with the kind of income that people are getting. Um, So, yeah, I mean, they're definitely like, uh, it it sounds sort of like uh, Democrats are accepting somewhat of the, Citizens United argument Um, at the same time I mean it's just sort of just pure partisanship Mm -hmm. Um, you know if this was the Bush administration and they were doing the same things Democrats would be up in arms and Republicans would be defending it and we see that flip around every time Um, and then I guess to the the other question about whether Clinton represents this global plutocratic uh, class Mm. um, you know I think that it can be definitely true that, you know, a Clinton administration might be more liberal on dem- on domestic policy than an Obama administration just simply by the the fact that, you know, Obama has pulled the po- politics clo- further left of center yeah, than they were over eight, years, eight years. And, you know, just the demographics of the party and the fact that there's, you know, this rising group of people and the Bernie Sanders voters who are pulling the party to the left that she will have to answer to. And at the same time, it can also just look like a corporate diversity program for like Goldman Sachs or Microsoft or whatever. Um, You know, those both can be true at the same time. And, you know, I also think that, uh, you know, Lee Drutman, who's a New America scholar Mm -hmm. who had a piece in Vox the other day talking about how, you know, the dividing line of politics now has shifted between, you know, in 1960s, it was probably a, a dividing line of class. Mm-hmm. And nowadays it's one of race and ethnicity and diversity. Identity. And identity, yeah. And one of the reasons why is because it's a very politically advantageous line for the Democratic Party to be fighting on.
2: True. You know, yeah. it,
5: it really makes Republicans look terrible and unpopular with a lot of voting blocks, including, Republi- you know, like suburban and uh,
3: upper class Republicans. And Um, it allows the Democratic Party to sweep the less savory parts of its sort of coalition under the rug. And, and yeah, we do paid speeches for Goldman
5: Sachs What it helps them do is it helps them win elections. You know, that's what parties are supposed to do.
2: Presidential elections anyway. At least, yeah. (laughs) Maybe not all the other races. Yeah, the other one. The other one. I I, I feel like there's sort of a tidal force in the media as well, especially the political media, that sort of like – really sort of pulls in this sort of professional class bias. I think that every there's lots of people in the media who are willing to talk about how the two-party system seems wrong. But anytime they get around to thinking about what do I want as a third party, they always say, well, you know, the ideal third party would be like not racist... And would like service tech billionaires a lot better, and it's just like no, that's like the most overserved people already. Well, that's just who the media hangs out with, yeah, so yeah. that's
5: what they think. You know, the ideal third party, uh, you know, that would actually succeed is uh, Donald Trump.
2: Right. We need a racist nationalist party and we need an authentic left party that supports Social Security and Medicare. Yeah, exactly. I
3: I think what we're what we're going to see, though, uh, is increasingly the Trumpification of of the sort of local and state governments that they are going to become more kind of Trump like uh, because the Republicans have a much stronger hold over state governments and local governments than Democrats do. And at the federal level, you'll have Democrats who then are sort of sort of more catering to a professional um, a multicultural professional class, and and that I think is is potentially a recipe for a lot of national disharmony. That that at the local level you'll have a lot of very powerful Trumpian politics. At the national level, yeah, you'll you'll have two parties that basically don't speak to each other and yeah. force people who who maybe have overlapping interests and to be governing opponents. in the
2: same venues. Yeah, yeah, that's think, why and that's why I say pre- presidential elections because the Democrats have largely abandoned a lot of these races and a lot of these governing venues. Uh, and and it's going to allow. I mean, oh, I, mean I, I think Nas- I think the National Republican Party will make an effort to try to expurge the Trumpianness from their Washington area. But out in the states, it's going to the popularity will remain, and that tinge is going to come back to bite them again and again and again.
5: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a big question. You know, you hear from a lot of the Never Trump Republicans or you know i've i've talked to some high level republicans involved in in you know donations campaign finance and they mm. think oh this will just blow over you know trump is just it's trump it's about the it's thinking, freak event yeah and yeah. it's a freak event but i think you can al- you can already see that like this isn't going anywhere this is a new cleavage in american politics sure. that trump is writing i mean you even see you know senator tom cotton from arkansas who's like a potential 2020 presidential candidate going out there talking about restricting legal immigration yeah, yeah. Um, you know if you put a you know more polished face on this trump politics maybe in this day and age when a lot of people feel like democracy isn't working for them, and capitalism is running roughshod over them. A
2: freak event. They I might. Mean, it might win. To call um, this a freak event would be like Michelangelo spending how many years sculpting David and saying, "What the fuck did I just do? <laughs> the thing you intended, the thing you always intended to do, you did." Republicans. Anyway, thank you for uh, being a part of this discussion, Paul. Well always, Thanks for having me on. Always a cheer. And st- late, late stage capitalism. Going to be a fun time for everybody. Zach, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, thank you. And we will be. We'll be right back. And we're back. Uh, Zach Carter, again, hi everybody, is here, and uh, we're joined by Elise Foley. What's up? So, uh, just happy a, to be here. Yeah, just as you know, if, if Elise Foley is on this podcast, then that is probably your cue that Donald Trump has wildly shifted in his position on immigration in the past twenty-four hours. Has is that, that true? Has that happen? <laughs>
1: No, uh, I don't I like know. I wouldn't <laughs> say that. I actually, I would say that he's more so stayed the same, and that he successfully duped a lot of people last week into thinking that he was changing, but that's in a, fact was not, and I, proved that he was not.
2: That's that's a better way of putting it. I think I'm, what I'm thinking about is, is not so much policy, but like a radical shift in tone over the course of a Wednesday, in which he. Famously traveled to Mexico in a trip that was either two days or a month in the making. There are varying reports on that. To uh, to meet with, uh, uh, with, with with Mexico's president, and there they had a sedate, milk toast joint statement about immigration, and it seemed like Donald Trump was anesthetized. He kept talking about working within the hemisphere to bolster both the American and Mexican economy. I thought, "Oh, well that's good news good news for all those factories in the maquiladora zone. They're going to be able to retain their their labor practices." And and, and he he seemed to actually find new foreigners to uh, to remind Mexico that they're bothered by like Central Americans. And then he comes back to a rally in Phoenix, Arizona, and he's once again the slave ring Freakazoid that we've all come to know and love.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean this. The tone exactly through the course of yesterday uh, or Wednesday. Wednesday. I, I apologize. Wednesday
3: podcast is outside um, of time.
1: <laughs> right, Arthur's <laughs> not here to police it. Um, <laughs> over the course of Wednesday, he just totally changed his tone, and he the way he was talking about people uh, in when he was in Mexico was much more positive than he gets to Phoenix, and it's. Some throwaway lines that, yeah, some undocumented people are are fine, but mostly, let me talk for a long time about how they are mostly criminals, and they're definitely here and will kill you, and we have to deport all of the criminals, which there are so many. Um,
2: in the Chris Era, he went otherwise will all die. He went from referring to them as beyond reproach to returning to them as as a criminal element on mass. Was this was
3: this just like a, a way to like keep him in the? Headlines for a week where he's like, "Oh, we're softening, we're softening, we're softening." Mwah, notch.
2: that's the part I don't understand. There was literally two weeks of feint, saying, "Okay, he's going to soften his immigration stance." Everyone was the pump had been primed for a softer immigration stance. I think, I think the media had been primed to expect to have to write a story. Well, Donald Trump's flip flopping on what he said, and 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 there was there there was of course nuggets of that way way back when he. The famous New York Times interview that we don't know about and hasn't been released. That has people who who do know about it suggest that everything he said about immigration up to this point was just the opening bid on a grand bargain about immigration, and that even the wall that he's talked about is not necessarily a, a thing he wants to do. So there was two weeks of, oh, a pivot is coming. Ann Coulter going to be disappointed. V Dare is gonna be disappointed. The alt-right's gonna be disappointed. And then no, no, it didn't happen. There was no fate. So why why the why the why the juking that never happened?
1: Well, what I think may have happened, and this is just a theory, is that behind the scenes there was a battle within the Trump world over what was the best thing to do. So there were, you know, reports that Chris Christie was urging him to kind of go this way on immigration. Um I think there are probably others who look at poll numbers who were telling him to go, and by go this way, I mean soften, uh, for lack of a better word. Not be as racist. Not a good one. (laughs) Yeah, not be as extreme on immigration. And there were some people urging him, I think, probably to do that, and they lost out to the people like Jeff Sessions. I mean, what what he was promising last night was basically along the lines of what Jeff Sessions, uh, the senator from Alabama, proposes I think that just they they want out that side so
3: I've got a question I mean you cover immigration for us obviously I mean are there are there Latino Latina groups that have been more sympathetic to Trump in the last few weeks that have been maybe interested in coming around that you've that you've spoken with or are there any organizations
1: no. (laughs) (laughs) no not not as a whole I mean there are some uh Latino Republicans who in the past have said they um, are willing to, you know, sort of hold their noses and vote for Trump. Uh, Some of them, I believe, are even reconsidering now after the speech last night. I think that a lot of people were who were in that camp who really opposed Hillary Clinton and they're not going to, you know, they just cannot vote for her. They can't let, you know, this happen, her win because of them. So they were willing to vote for Trump, but they were really, really hopeful, I think, that this change was coming and to see that this change is is not coming or certainly isn't here now, I think was really disappointing to those people. So I think maybe it was helping him keep some of the people that he already had. But I didn't see any, you know, Latino large scale Latino groups being like, oh this is great. Maybe we can work with this guy.
2: All right. Well I mean, God knows we have a weekend to go. He'll probably be on a bunch of Sunday shows. He'll probably say four new different things about immigration
1: fingers crossed fingers crossed keep thank- me employed
2: yes <laughs> We will, we would we would definitely keep you employed if trump was not a candidate for president at least you you understand that right i hope yes we would okay thank you elise foley for joining us and we'll be right back And we're back. Uh, we're back with Zach Carter. Hey. In here. And uh, joining us now is our good friend, Travis Waldron. Travis's presence on that podcast means that we're about to talk about something at the intersection of politics and sports. What could that be? What could that be? I don't week? know. Did that anything happen? happen? I'm not sure. Yeah. I mean, Colin
3: Kaepernick? Colin Kaepernick. Yeah, Kaepernick. That's the one. Yeah.
2: Yes. We're, we're getting now into that sort of, uh, as most people go to sports know before any game starts, there's this empty gesture where we sing the national anthem.
3: <laughs> so you're just going to go straight there. Just straight there all <laughs> the way in.
2: Uh, yes, I am. Because uh, <laughs> when I go to a UVA game, I'm already doing my bit for God and country when I'm rooting against Duke. We can all agree on that. Yeah, that's true. Um, I think people tell the lie that we, we sing the national anthem at sports events to have a moment of contemplation. Uh, so Colin Kaepernick had himself a moment of contemplation and this just goes to show that no one actually wants sports people to have moments of contemplation about to, America. To be and their clear, what,
3: what what Colin Kaepernick uh, did was, was not stand for the national anthem right. at, a, at a preseason game. game. At a
2: pre- an important preseason game. Yeah. Yeah. Ruin the Republic by not standing for the national anthem at a preseason game. But it was an act of protest. It was it an was, act it was, of protest. It was, it was, it was intended
0: was. as such. It, sure. And, you know, I think <laughs> the funny no thing to is, to is there's so many facets of this that are— Wait, what is the flag? What is the national anthem? And are we actually going to listen to what Colin Kaepernick said? Or are we just going to debate whether it was appropriate to say it at all in that venue? Yes. (laughs) Because like everyone comes out and, you know, you've seen this from Drew Brees and and all these other NFL players. I respect what he said, but that was disrespectful in that venue. And it's like, well, what, what,
2: what fucking venue? When are you
0: supposed to protest? (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: Like, on, on your home, at,
3: at home when you're writing your blog. <laughs> right. Like the, the
0: entire point
3: of a protest, that's protest
2: what the players Tribune 101
0: is, for. Is, to, is to get attention for it.
2: Yeah, and to make, it, make it troublesome for people. And if
0: you're not, if, if you're not, if you're protesting something that is a nationwide problem, and this is the thing about Colin Kaepernick's stance, is we can all pretty much agree. That what he's protesting. We, we've decided, at least some of us in this country, that this is a problem worth addressing. And, and the problem here is
3: police killing black people.
0: Right. Right. And if that's something that you see as a systemic
2: ill in this country,
0: what is there a better symbol to protest than the American flag?
2: Seriously, or at a football game, or to, to, a preseason. You football know, and game, the but,
0: idea that you can't question the flag—it's
2: ridiculous. Is
0: and I think it's it goes to your point about this sort of. Uh, symbolic nature of the National Anthem at sporting events is that it's just become so ritualistic. It's something we just do. Right. And there's no real thought to it. There's no real... You know, what are we doing? What does this mean?
2: In Baltimore, they just wait to say, ohs when we get to the end of it. That's all they do. That's all ah, that. But, you know, I think in football, it's <laughs>
3: a little bit different because I think football is this is this it's it seems more like a performance of a militaristic proxy war game. You listen to sure. football coaches. They talk about putting on your helmet and going to war. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, well, it, it, it feels more of like a militaristic event, even though. You know, it is not the same as going out
0: and getting shot. But at. it is the proxy, but, yeah. And and also, I mean, the I think there's a different reaction in football
4: culture is much different than it
0: would have been in another sport because like football is such a conservative status quo. It there's so much like militaristic uh, ethos to it. And, it's and there's not gender just, tied up in it, you know? right? It, it's not just you know that we use the military words in football. It's that. They follow kind of military code type stuff. You know, right. we're all a unit. We're all a team. We're, you know, everybody has their part. In and we, it's very essentially um, American. We
2: talk about we talk about having a holiday after the Super Bowl. Right. You know, just like we would for you know a, a president or Martin Luther King. Let's have take Monday off after the Super Bowl but, because that's just as important.
3: But the history of the national anthem. I mean, people talk about about who some of the people who complained said, well, maybe I agree with this guy on on policy, but but I don't like him politicizing the sport. The history of the national anthem at sporting events is inherently
0: political. The, the very act of playing the national anthem is political. We just saw right. the Olympics it's, where it's, it was
2: the, where it was supposed to be the sort of ringing endorsement of our jingoistic right. pride to, to hear the national anthem. And play. I think
0: if you if you look back at the history of this, I mean, Colin Kaepernick is not the first black athlete to raise issue with the the national anthem. Right. We've seen Ma- Mahmoud abdul rofus twenty years ago this year that he refused to stand. Uh, for the national anthem before an NBA game, because, you know, he said it was a symbol of tyranny, primarily against Muslims. What I find um, interesting is that they, they destroyed his career. And, right. then, and, yeah, and, but, and you then know, we got, kind of have gotten you know, worse look, on the Muslim thing. You we look thing. back now, you know, it's funny that it's happened. A bunch of people have made this point. It's funny that it happened this summer, you know, after this summer when Muhammad Ali died. Mm-hmm. And we had this glorious sort of moment about celebrating Muhammad Ali's activism and mm-hmm. his, his, like, the idea that Muhammad Ali would stand up to the man and stand up to everyone. And obviously there's still a lot of people who don't like the fact that he didn't go to Vietnam, but we, we celebrated sort we of this man who it. was larger than his moment.
3: History has decided that Vietnam was a mistake, and so because right. because he was on the right side of history of that, we have now decided that it was a good thing, even right. though it basically ruined his career. But if you look at, at if
0: you look at the the you know in the moment reactions to Ali, the in the moment reactions mm-hmm. to John Carlos and Tommy Smith at the 1968 Olympics when they did the Black Power salute, you know it was a, it was the same as what we're going through now. It's you know there there is a there is it's simultaneously an idea that. A lot of people don't want to believe there are racial problems in this country. And the idea that we don't want our athletes doing this,
2: one of the especially
0: that, the black athlete. One of the things and, I
2: find interesting, though, is that uh, a lot of NBA stars, uh, famous NBA stars, have sort of decided to take on the burden of, of, of bringing awareness to the fact that blacks are killed by police mm-hmm. and politicizing at every chance they get. I and mean, then we're talking about people like LeBron James, talking about people like Carmelo. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's something about NBA culture and also the journalistic culture around M- the NBA where they have a lot more leeway yeah. to do this than, than they do in the NFL. Well, and I, think I feel is... like, I feel like some of the same, obviously the NBA is a black game. It's played mm-hmm. by black athletes. It's covered by black and journalists. It, it's
0: identified as, as sort of a very culturally black sport yeah. in a way that the NFL isn't.
2: Yeah. And and it, uh, this goes back to the whole fact, that w- the way the NFL is very conservative and very sort of uh, temperamentally juvenile in its, in its outward show of patriotism. Uh, I, I feel like Colin Kaepernick really is just kind of following the example of some of the guys who'd be his sports heroes. I think normally. he certainly
0: mm-hmm. isn't. You know, I think the NBA is a much more individualistic game. Mm-hmm. We, identify, yeah, we identify individual players yeah. in the NBA in a way that we – we don't in other sports there's also more individual power in the nba like you
2: definitely can't
0: suspend LeBron james or carmelo anthony or chris paul or derrick rose you know those are those are the guys that people come to watch there aren't that many guys in the nfl that have that kind of power that that they're not replaceable that they're not
3: all of that said we did just talk about how the nba like basically torpedoed a guy's career 20 years ago but the, but the
0: nba has the you know but you look at last you know, the last two years when when guys were showing up on the court for warmups and I can't breathe yeah, shirts yeah. and you know, Carmelo marched in Baltimore and LeBron with his has done it primarily on social media. You even go back to the Donald Sterling fiasco in, in Los Angeles right. when guys turned their warmups inside out and threw them on the floor because of the owner making racist comments and LeBron, you know, across the country saying, Hey man, if these guys want to sit out I'll be with him.
2: One of the more and, grotesque aspects of what Colin Kaepernick has faced is that people say that he shouldn't say what he's saying because he's rich and privileged.
0: Right. Right. Or because he grew up in a, in a white family with white parents. Yeah. I mean, I have, bad, white parents.
2: I have bad news for everybody, but when it comes to talking about poverty and getting things done about poverty, it does take sometimes a couple rich people—
0: well, to stand up and say I'm going
2: to do the right thing because we don't listen to poor people. But there's also about there's also
0: an important point <laughs> here when it comes to Colin Kaepernick is that and the black athlete protesting is that their status as athletes, their status as wealthy athletes, does not exempt them from the problems that face the black community when it comes to policing. Look at uh, Thabo Cephalosha in New York. You've oh, got that's his right. Leg broken by NYPD. Uh, Warwick Dunn was pulled over. Several years ago, the running back, because he looked like somebody transporting drugs or guns. Tory Hunter was a was held at gunpoint outside of his home when the alarm went off because police didn't believe it was his. Like the idea that the like that athletes are exempt from this because we know who they are. It's also
3: a perversion of the use of uh, hypocrisy. Right. And some, somehow somebody's got to be a hypocrite because they're standing up for people who are in some way maybe may meaningfully different from them. If if I mean, I, I do think it's the case that being a wealthy athlete while you are still subjected to, you know, all, all sorts of racial problems that like just being a normal middle, even the word normal for middle class white people like you're not subjected to. Um, I, I do think it is a little bit easier to be wealthy and black than to be poor. And sure. Black, right. But but that's it's not hypocritical to right. say this is why we should make things better for all black people. Right. <laughs> You're not that's not that's well, not what hypocrisy. And I is. think there's
0: a powerful element of Colin Kaepernick's protest here in that he's not LeBron, he's not Chris Paul or Dwayne Wade right. or you know Colin Kaepernick is was on the brink of making this roster anyway. Right. He might not make the 49ers roster. And 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 this is certainly not going to help. You know even though the 49ers have stood up for him and yep. said he had the right to do this and they respect it, uh, it's certainly not going to help him get a job in the NFL. I mean, <clears throat> if you've seen the anonymous comments executives have made, sure. you know, these people are treating him as one compared him to Ray Carruth, who murdered his pregnant girlfriend.
2: Right. and like, that, they,
0: You know, the lack of perspective here is, is crazy, but I think there is an extra power to what Colin Kaepernick did because he was not an untouchable yeah Mm -hmm.
2: meanwhile there will be many many people who have committed actual crimes who will be on nfl rosters this year well they didn't diss the flag so there you go all right travis thanks for joining us thank you really appreciate it and we will be right back So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Christine Canetta. Our executive producer is Nick Offenberg. I'm Jason Lincolns, and this week we are joined by documentary filmmaker Steve Mims, as well as Huffington Post reporters Paul Blumenthal, Zach Carter, Elise Foley, and Travis Waldron. So That Happened is available on iTunes at iTunes.com slash so that happened. Please check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send us an email at so that happened at huffingtonpost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening, and we miss you already.